these slippers? Hey, it's Asif Manvi, and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Dorothy's slippers. Don't touch the glass. Oh, we're not in Kansas anymore. They're amazing. We're in the National Museum of American History, looking at fancy shoes. The house started to spin in the air because of the tornado. And do you remember when the Wicked Witch, when the house crashed, and Dorothy took the shoes and they went on her feet? Uh Uh-huh. These were the shoes. Oh, I see. These aren't just fancy shoes. They're Dorothy's ruby slippers from The Wizard of Oz. Ruby slippers! What have you done with them? Give them back to me or I'll... It's too late. There they are, and there they'll stay. You drove up from Houston. Uh, How long did that take you? Did we figure about 26 hours? 26 hours just to see the ruby slippers. Wow. (laughs) Give them back. Keep tight inside of them. Their magic must be very powerful, or she wouldn't want them so badly. And did you just come to the Smithsonian just to see the ruby slippers? They were definitely in my top two. I had to see Abraham Lincoln's top hat as well. Which one are you more impressed by, though? Come on, come on, you know. Okay, Okay. the ruby red slippers. Because I remember watching the movie as a child, and the the monkeys scared me to death. Monkeys are scary. Take special care of those ruby slippers. I want those most of all. The Wizard of Oz is a classic American film. And if you haven't seen it yet, I mean, okay, who hasn't seen this movie? Who are you people? Do yourself a favor, pause this, go watch it right now, and come back. It's that good. I'll wait. It's a twister. There's no place like home. Welcome back. Or maybe you never left. I truly have no way of knowing. So, anyway, let's continue. In The Wizard of Oz, you already know that after Dorothy Gale's house fell on the Wicked Witch of the East, she received the magical, powerful ruby slippers. But outside of Oz, they're a cultural artifact, and there's a lot more to learn about them. Do you know that it's not the only pair of ruby slippers? I did not know that. What if I told you that this is a mismatched pair in the sense that they are not from the same pair? Ah. One is from pair number one and one is from pair number six. So many people come to see the ruby slippers that the carpet in front of their display case has to be replaced regularly. Why is it that 80 years after Judy Garland put them on, the ruby slippers still have the power to attract kids, parents, grandparents, and sure, even podcast hosts? Do you think it's weird that this many people come to visit a pair of ratty old shoes from 1938? (laughs) I don't think so. I think it's like a big symbol of our culture. These magical slippers that can take you home wherever you are. Right. Just magic. There's no place like home. The ruby slippers are one of the most popular artifacts at the Smithsonian. So in this podcast, where I'm picking 10 iconic objects from American entertainment, how could the ruby slippers not be one of my choices? This is a a very large room. And there's pictures on the walls, and then there are large quotes. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The ruby slippers have their very own gallery at the National Museum of American History. They're in a temperature-controlled glass case in the center of a very large, very dimly lit room. In fact, most of the light in the room 
is on the slippers themselves. You know, you come in and the thing that's got the light on it, you know, like shining down from heaven is yeah. the ruby slippers. Now, is there a reason why it's so dark in here? I'm talking to Ryan Lintelman, a curator of the entertainment collection and an expert on the ruby slippers. We want the shoes to sparkle. So it makes it kind of like you're, you know, you're walking into a temple like Indiana Jones, right? You're amazing! So we estimate that since 1979, when we got them, I mean, a hundred million people have seen them probably. Wow. You know, it's, it's pretty incredible. And other than like maybe the Mona Lisa, I don't know that any other museum can really claim that one thing has been seen by so many people. How exciting is this for you on a scale of one to 10? I'm like, I'm kind of shaking right now. You are? Yeah. And it's surprising because there's no mm -hmm. rubies and they're not even really slippers. Yeah. You know, we have the Star Spangled Banner, we have George Washington's uniform, but mm. it seems like people really want to see Dorothy's slippers. You know, I've seen people tear up and just fall down on their knees seeing props from movies because they matter so much to people. It's sort of a constant reminder that your job is fulfilling when mm -hmm. you see that happen. Mm -hmm. Or that people's lives are empty. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> oh, please, please, sir. I've got to see the wizard. The Good Witch of the North sent me. Prove it! She's wearing the ruby slippers she gave her. Oh, so she... So, let me ask you this. No rubies, and they're not slippers. So what's the big deal? <laughs> that's, that's like the million-dollar question, isn't it? You know, why, why does this movie matter so much to people? Mm -hmm. And they come in and, and make pilgrimages to D.C. to see these shoes worn by a little girl in a movie 80 years ago, mm -hmm. right? You know, the slippers are, I think, you know, one of the best sort of, you know, physical representations of the glamour of Hollywood and like this magic of movies. And, and you know, you start to think about this movie coming out in like 1939 when, you know, there's the Great Depression, like World War II is on the horizon and like how much this must have mattered to people to see this movie that was just full of songs and jokes and it changes miraculously from black and white to color and it's all about learning to believe in yourself and courage and hope and you know that message kind of still comes through and i think a lot of people over the years have like have, have found great meaning in that you know they're, they're not where they want to be in life and like dorothy they're thinking about somewhere over the rainbow and so there's always something that draws people back to that film The movie, though, was not a big success when it first came out, right? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it was it was a bona fide flop. Well, it's crazy. It was so expensive, right? Like, imagine if Titanic had, like, just made back its budget, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> People would be like, oh, man, that was really a flop. But, but you know, it, it did okay. It was just, like, a super packed year for movies because right. Gone with the Wind, 1939, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. All great movies. Stagecoach, uh, Grapes of Wrath. Like, all these films are coming out right yes. then. And, and you know, this was kind of seen as a kid's movie, right? The only reason that MGM took the risk on making The Wizard of Oz is because Snow White had been so successful. Ah. And they're like, oh, let's do another movie with a, a young woman who has a lot of little people around her. <laughs> you know what? I hadn't really thought of that, but now I realize <laughs> no, they're, that they're like, you know, it, it was completely in keeping like, with the way Hollywood works. It's all right. You may all come out and thank her. Come out, come out, wherever you are. 
We'll have some great songs. We'll have little people, you know, like magic, you know, an old lady who's mean. Yeah. Right? Oh, wow. There is a, a right? tremendous parallel. I hadn't ever thought of that. The house began to pitch, when did it really reach its height of popularity? You know, it was successful at the time, and, you know, people liked it, but like I said, it was, you know, just not the movie that everybody remembered from that year. Yeah. And, you know, it was re-released once or twice, but then 1956, it played for the first time on television. Ah. Well, I remember when I was a kid, mm -hmm. and I grew up in England, I wasn't familiar with The Wizard of Oz until it came on at Christmas, and it was one of the sort of standard movies that would play. Uh, and, and, and so it did become a tradition. It's crazy, you know, that we, every time we sort of refresh our exhibit with the Ruby Slippers, right? People say like, well, are they still as popular? Do we still need to have them out? They are still just as popular, and especially mm -hmm. with young people, right? They run in to see them. This is like their thing at this museum that they want to see. And it's pretty astonishing, you know, that, again, like no other movie from 1939, like Gone with the Wind is not popular among six-year-olds, right? right? right. <laughs> but there's something about this. And, and, you know, The Wizard of Oz, when that movie was made, the story was already old, right? Yeah. The, the book first came out in 1900. It was kind of the Harry Potter of its day mm -hmm. at that time, right? Mm -hmm. But then when they made this movie, you know, 39 years later already, when, when the MGM film was made, they had to put this title card at the beginning. And they oh. said, we're you looking know, at a, uh, an iPhone. Uh, is that a screen capture from the movie? Yeah, so this is what the, the title card that came, you know, before even before the title. The, before the movie started. In, in the 1939 release, it says, For nearly 40 years, this story has given faithful service to the young at heart, and time has been powerless to put its kindly philosophy out of fashion. So they're saying, you know, like, we don't even understand why everybody still likes this. <laughs> but, like, the, like we can't right. stop this juggernaut of a story. Yeah. This, you know, you guys love this. And to the young in heart, we dedicate this picture. So, you know, they're saying, like, like it's still here. So I heard the ruby slippers were originally supposed to be the silver slippers. Yeah. In Baum's books, they're silver. And this has led a lot of people to, to have theories about that the books are really about bimetallism, which was this political issue in the populist era in the ah. early 20th century that, you know, people wanted to switch from a gold to a silver standard. And, and the silver shoes were supposed to represent his belief in this system, which maybe, <laughs> you know, like, but... When they were making the movie and they, you know, were sticking with the original silver shoes from, from the book, right, they realized they're filming in Technicolor. Mm -hmm. And Technicolor is an expensive process. And suddenly silver on gold doesn't look that great. And they're like, what yeah, if they made them ruby? Yeah. You know, that, that might pop, right? And so they tried it out and loved it. I always find interesting these sort of lucky kind of accidents that happen in terms of like creating something for a practical purpose that mm -hmm. then ends up having its own mythology around yeah. it. But who, who knew that they would resonate in such a way, yeah. you know? I mean, think of all the other adaptations of that there have been, right? There's sure. Wicked, right? Mm -hmm. There's Return to Oz, the right. sort of scary one. Wasn't there also a complete remake of The Wizard of Oz at one point? There's always some new twist, right? So, like, like The Wiz is the African-American cast version, sure. right? And like, the uh, the James Franco version, the uh, Oz the powerful, I think, Oz oh, the Mighty Oz, Powerful. Oz, right? Oz the right. Great and Powerful. Yes, yes, yes. You know, that's kind of like trying to update this for modern, more uh, sophisticated audiences, yeah. maybe, or something like that. But what remains at the center is this sort of the story of, of Dorothy, right? This character who's 
you know, an everyday person. She's longing for more. She gets thrown into this crazy situation and finds out that she has the power all along to get what she wants, right? So she kind of like learns to rely on herself. It's that American rugged individualism. I mean, it's a great example of the monomyth of this hero's journey, right? Joseph Campbell about, you know, somebody who's born to simple means, but finds out that they have a secret power and, you know, with the guidance of some learned person, you know, learns how to use it and, and with a group of, of friends, you know, is able to overcome this adversity and like change right. the world, right? right? So that's the Wizard of Oz as much as it is Star Wars or the Bible, right. <laughs> you yeah. know? Jesus Christ, Luke Skywalker, Dorothy Gale. Now that is my kind of great dinner party. But only one of these heroes has their shoes on display, not in a galaxy far, far away, but here on Earth, where they are subject to light, humidity, and the ravages of time. So how does the Smithsonian keep the ruby slippers in tip-top shape for all the people making pilgrimages to see them? How old are these slippers? 80 years old? Yeah. yeah. So how do you maintain them at this so, point? You know, the, they came to the museum and we cleaned them up and, you know, made sure that they were protected, which is the main thing that museums do is just make sure that they're not getting too much light, that they're not getting dusty. But we never did this sort of in-depth conservation that that we do today with objects that we know sort of how to take care of uh, materials better. And so we did this Kickstarter campaign where we raised $350,000 to hire these world specialists in shoe conservation, yeah. basically. And they came in and studied the material. So they used X-ray spectroscopy to be able to figure out exactly what minerals and elements were wow. used in the construction of the sequins. They found really interesting stuff, like that there's a layer of silver that was electroplated onto the sequins when they were being made so that they have extra shimmery shine, you know, uh-huh. when the lights are hitting them. So we learn, you know, through this material analysis a little bit more about movies and the people who are making them and how they, they knew how cameras and lights worked you know, making these costumes to take advantage of what Technicolor had to offer, of what, you know, shooting on a set, close set with, you know, this certain type of lighting would offer. Like people think, well, the slippers look kind of faded when you see them in person. They actually aren't as faded as you might think. They were a darker burgundy type color because they knew there was going to be so much light on them that that was the only way to make them look bright red ruby. If they were any lighter than that, they would probably look like, you know, pink. With all that light on them. Wow, interesting. So, you know, these sorts of things that we kind of figure out, we can reverse engineer how much damage has happened to the shoes and what we should do in the future based on how they were actually designed to begin with. Mm. And then, you know, our conservator, Don Wallace, actually went and studied every single sequin on the shoes. And she figured out how much damage was done, what we could do to, you know, preserve it for the future, and then rotated them all so that they're all in perfect alignment. And cleaned every one of these 4,800 sequins with, like, Q-tips, basically. So they're going to, you know, continue to be on display for years to come because we did all this work. The ruby slippers are as impressive as they are today because of Don Wallace. So I knew I had to meet her. All right, so we're walking into, like, what looks like a laboratory of, like, machines. Yeah, this is our analytical lab. Uh-huh. Coming up, Dawn invites us into her laboratory for an extra close look at the ruby slippers. Like, so close that the Wicked Witch of the West would be green with envy. Well, she's green to begin with, isn't she? Anyway, the Wicked Witch would be, you know, super jealous of how close I get.
And this is where you restored yeah, the ruby is, slippers? Yes, this is where okay. uh, we conserved the ruby slippers. Conserved, is that the word? Yeah, restore usually means that you're adding other materials back onto it, uh -huh. trying to restore it to a previous state. Okay, and so what is conserve? Conserve is we're trying to stabilize how it is right now. So this is no ordinary basement, where Dawn Wallace is in her lab and has just finished Q-tipping every single sequin. The ruby slippers are just days away from being put back on public display. Dawn is now putting on these lovely purple gloves. Yes. She's about, and she's opening this very nondescript box. Um, oh, that's the, the tape there. And now here we go. Wow. And I'm looking inside and seeing the ruby slippers. There they are. They've got like foam in, in, inside them. The museum's pair are mismatched. Yes, that's what I heard. And if you look at them, the differences are pretty readily visible. Okay, show me how you can tell that they're from two different pairs. Well, one thing is if you look straight on, you can see that those inner heel grips at the back inside of the shoe, those are different shapes. Ah, yes, they are. Yeah. yeah. You can also see that the heels, the right heel, it has a, a block, a more, a more of, a of a block, block thing, yeah. And whereas then, the left heel, it's a little more slender. Uh -huh. um, it's kind of like seeing identical twins, but if you look at them close enough, you can sort of then see. Yeah, you can who, see the You can see the differences, you know, difference. so it's sort of the same thing. Yeah. What did you do as part of the conservation process? It was really stabilizing them. You can see that there's some lost beads and mm -hmm. some areas of lost sequins. So really it was cleaning the surfaces. And when it came to the sequins, it was a sequin by sequin sequence. Mm -hmm. Each one okay. was vacuumed. The thread was examined to see if it was secure. And then some sequins had flipped. And mm. so I aligned all the sequins in that one direction. Again, if we can have this silver facing out, they just kind of really reflect the light a lot better. Right, right. They're 80 years old. They're not going to look like they did in 1938. Right. But we don't want them to. Right. Judy right. Garland danced in these shoes, and we want to keep that story. Right. Follow the yellow brick road. 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 Now, tell me a little bit about how the slippers got to the Smithsonian. Like, how did, how did you guys get them? I mean, that, that's a really interesting story in itself. There was an auction in 1970 where MGM, which was the major studio that you know created all of these incredible old movie musicals and you know the, the movies that we think of as classic Hollywood, mm -hmm. it was transitioning. You know, the 60s were a really rough time for movie studios for a lot of reasons. And in 1970, they decided they were going to sell off their back lot where all these beautiful films had been made, the Western Town and City Streets and all this stuff for redevelopment. The studio back lots are worth millions now as real estate. Lot number three has already been sold. But when they sold it all off, they decided they were just going to clean out their prop and costume warehouses, too. So all these things that they'd held on to since the 20s and 30s, they were just going to sell them in this big auction. Fantastic props and fabulous costumes go to the highest bidder at tomorrow's auction. The public is cordially invited. So is their money. But the centerpiece, you know, the, the keystone object here was the ruby slippers. So the guy that organized the auction was an old Hollywood costumer who knew, this, knew his stuff. And they told him, go find the ruby slippers. We know they're back there somewhere. There they are. $1,000 two. $2,000 I'm bid the shoes three. $3,000 I'm bid the shoes make it four. 
And the people organizing the auction, who are these like, you know, corporate takeover people of MGM, they don't know how the studio system worked, that they would have made multiples. So this guy went in and he pulled out the pair of Ruby slippers. $15,000 I'm bid once, $15,000 I'm bid twice. $15,000 I'm bid third and last call. Are you all through? Fair warning. And they are sold. The bidder's number, please. Those are the slippers that were donated to us nine years later. What MGM didn't know is that he found at least six other pairs of right. Ruby slippers right. and stole them away in the night, basically, mm-hmm. and sold them over the years to different people. So those slippers, you know, several of them still exist in other places. But of course, if he had shown them, this is what he would have told you. If he told MGM, I found all these other pairs, they would say, destroy the others. There can only be one pair of Ruby slippers because we want that value to, yeah, sure. you know, not, not be diluted. So he saved Hollywood history by stealing from MGM this Robin Hood type character. So he, he basically took the pairs of slippers and sold off the other ones mm-hmm. to various private collectors or who did yeah. he sell them to? You know, the pairs that exist out there all have their own interesting stories of where they've been. And th- there was one pair after this auction made headlines around the world because $15,000 was the most that anything sold for at this auction except for the entire showboat from the movie Showboat also went for $15,000. <laughs> so, the, you know, this pair of shoes seemed pretty remarkable, right? right? But I, I think that people really realized how much The Wizard of Oz meant to people at that moment when they sold for this, right? So there are all these stories across the country. And this woman in Tennessee named Roberta Bauman said, well, I have ruby slippers what are you talking about and this reporter went out and talked to her and found out there had been a contest in 1939 for people to name the top movies of the year and you know she won this contest and or i guess she got second prize the first prize was the gavel for mr smith goes to washington so they sent these pair of ruby slippers to her and they'd been in her closet for years she'd taken them out to like local schools and shown them off wait wait so she won a uh a a raffle essentially like (laughs) In 1939, and at that time, which was right after the movie had come out. In 39. So she gets these ruby slippers from this rather like, uh, you know, unextraordinary film that had just sort of come and gone. Right, right. You know. (laughs) (laughs) And then Um, they're just in her closet for years. Yeah. So the guy who you were talking about earlier, his name is Kent Warner, yes, right? Yes, The guy who stole the slippers mm-hmm. and ran off into the night with them. <laughs> now, how many slippers did he have? We're not sure. So, but he gave them away to private auctions yeah. and pri- I mean, private collectors. Right, right. You know, over the years, the people who worked on the productions at MGM said, we must have had seven or ten pairs of those shoes wow. around, something like that. So, but how many pairs are there now today? We know of four. And there's probably a fifth that's out there somewhere. So where are the four? The four, the, the, they're there's here. One there's here. one yeah. here. We call that sort of the nation's pair, right, to help keep track of things because they belong to the nation. Right? Okay. All right. Got it. There's the pair at the Academy Museum. Yes. So in, in L.A., they're going to go on display in 2019 in, ah, okay. in the new museum. There's a pair that was stolen from the Judy Garland Museum and has recently been recovered by the FBI. We were able to help the FBI with this investigation and help them to figure out that this looks like an authentic pair mm-hmm. of ruby slippers. So they think that, you know, that case is still ongoing, so they've got them in evidence right now. So oh, is they're, that right? Yeah, they're like the criminal pair, I guess. Okay, so, <laughs> so there's the nation's pair, yeah. there's the Hollywood glam yeah. pair, Those are and then there's the criminal pair. It's right, like, it's right. like <laughs> this is like a bad family tree. Like, <laughs> this is just like, you know, like, this is like how, how all my uncles yeah, right, basically right. work out. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so then if you're going to use that, you know, comparison, then there's the black sheep pair that doesn't show up to family reunions. This pair is, uh, it's actually Roberta Bauman's pair was uh-huh. bought uh, by these individuals at an auction and it hasn't been seen in years now. Oh, so, so they've got it somewhere locked up in, a, mm-hmm. in or in a drawer somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Now, do you guys here at the Smithsonian just feel... Like, are you just like, we wish there weren't those other pairs out there? Is <laughs> no. It, is, there, is, there a, is there a heist movie potential of like, <laughs> with Smithsonian curators go and steal the other pairs <laughs> and destroy them? Does it, does it feel like it takes away the value of what you have here? Not at all. No, the, the, I mean, it was a once in a lifetime thing when the FBI brought this other pair here and we could compare them. After we'd done all this research on the materials that the other pair was made of and how they were constructed, to be able to look at another pair so closely and we actually figured out that that pair was a matching pair to ours because ours are mismatched. Yeah. On the inside, you know, it says Judy Garland 1 and Judy Garland 6 on ours. So we think they're from the first pair and the sixth pair. Theirs are the opposite. They're 6 and 1. So, you know, these we can match right. up left and right and take a look at these pairs together. And there's some evidence that she might have been wearing these pairs mismatched in the filming of the movie. Mm. Um, if you no, can zoom there in. Isn't. There is. No, stop. You're just making that up because you. This is this is what chaps my butt right here. For just for our listeners to understand, the pair that you have on display are actually m- not they're mismatched pairs. Yeah. And if you look at them closely, and I have, right. you can actually see that they are slightly different. They mm-hmm. are clearly not a pair. Mm-hmm. They are from you know. And now the the pair that exists that the FBI now have, mm-hmm. that was in the Judy Garland Museum, they are also a mismatched pair, right. but they are the exact mirror opposites of what you guys have. Exactly. So here's the question that I and everybody listening wants to know. Why don't you just put it back together the way they're supposed to be? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> but re- I really think that, you know, this, this story of them being mismatched is important for us to research and to, you know, come on, you're not such a, an OCD person that they have this to be. This is for right? all the OCD people out there. But I know there's like like at least 35% of the, the listeners right now are going like, would it be that hard? Nobody would know and it would make everything just feel like it was like, oh, it had order. Life has order. Well, so you, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, okay. So this is the pair we own. Yeah, yeah. And there's never been any talk of, of sort of putting the, the, the right pair back with the right pair. No, I mean, you know, the Smithsonian doesn't really do swapsies, you know, for <laughs> with the FBI. Uh, but even if we did, you know, this is really part of the story. And Judy Garland was 16 years old when she was making this movie, right? And right. so she's young. They made these shoes for her. And, you know, like in CSI shows when you can go like enhance, enhance, you know, and just keep getting in closer and closer on these stills. When we've been able to look at the really high resolution stills from the film, it looks like she's wearing a mismatched pair of slippers. And it looks like the pair that we have. Seriously. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just tell you, having worked on films myself, costume designers (laughs) rarely... Miss things like that. <laughs> Look, in 1939, I'm not sure that people thought you were going to be zooming in on, <laughs> you know, high resolution stills right. of this film. You know, we're, we're talking about the value of these slippers and and how many pairs there are out there and all this mystery that shrouds it. 
There have been a lot of attempts to pass off newly made ruby slippers as authentic original film-worn pairs. Uh-huh. So especially since we've done this Kickstarter campaign, I've had a lot of people contacting me and say, I mean, not maliciously usually, <laughs> but, you know, they they think that they've got a pair. And sometimes they've got really great stories, you know, like, well, one of the munchkins gave these to me at a silent auction. I, I right. bought these, you know, right. and he was there. Um, and, you know, what can I say except we have done never, the work. You never hear that. One of the munchkins gave this to me. Where'd you get that shirt? One of the munchkins gave it to me. We represent the lollipop guild, the lollipop guild, the lollipop guild, and in the name of the lollipop guild, we wish to welcome you to Munchkin Land. These are, you know, some of our national treasures. They actually have that designation at the museum as national treasures. Right. And so they're covered by all these protections, basically, you know, that as being high value and high prestige and irreplaceable. And so when they do travel, it's under armed guard, you know. Wow. And so they went to uh, London a few years ago for a Hollywood costume exhibition. And my colleague who traveled with them had a first class seat next to the ruby slippers in first class next to the armed guard who was with them. Wait, and so the ruby slippers got their own first class seat? Yes, they were in a box in first class, you know, with the champagne and the you know, hot wow. towels and all that. Wow. Did they get the beef or the fish? <laughs> <laughs> and one of the other few times that I know of that they actually went anywhere was to Oprah's show. Mm. And she was having a sort of Treasures of American History thing. And, you know, it was great press for the museum. And so we decided to do it. But but everybody was just holding their their breath about, you know, like, how's this going to work out? They, they really shouldn't travel like this. So, you know, during the filming of the show, she got excited and she picked them up. She wasn't supposed to do oh, that. God. And everybody in the museum was like... <gasps> You know, their heart stopped, and luckily she didn't like click the heels together. Or anything right, like that. Right. But, but that was sort of the, the moment that we were like, okay, maybe we should kind of keep them here she for a little try while. Them on. <laughs> then close your eyes and tap your heels together three times, and think to yourself, "There's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home." Do you think it has, I mean, it, it's really kind of incredible how affected people are by them, you know? I mean, obviously there's the the story of click your heels three times and, and there's a kind of hope and magic associated with ruby slippers. Do you think that that is something that you see more today than, say, in past years? Yeah, you I know. I'm asking, are people more depressed now and so they want to see the ruby slippers? <laughs> even more today than they ever did. <laughs> I think people are really yearning for something that unites and that is universal, right? Yeah. And this movie, I mean, people are jaded and you know, they might not have seen it recently or they think it's so overdone or whatever. But but if you watch this movie, I mean, you're going to have a reaction to it. One of the the most compelling and memorable images of it is is she and all of her friends with arms linked together, you know, walking down this road like through these crazy things that are up ahead, right? Yeah, like fields right. of poppies that are going to put you to sleep and right. flying monkeys and everything, you know, no matter what the world throws at you, if you've got your friends with you, you can you can get through. There's Oh, we're almost there at last, at last. It's beautiful, isn't it? Just like I knew it would be. He really must be a wonderful wizard to live in a city like that. Well, come on, then. What are we waiting for? Nothing. Let's hurry. Yes, let's run. <laughs> And that's what really, I think, people 
love about the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You've got that power in you all along. None of them really get anything from the wizard, right? They realize that they had that power, that they were brave, that they had courage, that they, you know, had a brain and all these things that people are like, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm an American. I can do this, right? And that's why, you know, people call it the American fairy tale. And, you know, this is what we talk about with the entertainment collection. I think this is a shared cultural vernacular is what I would call it. And, you know, if you think about the the phrases from The Wizard of Oz that are used in politics and society, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore or there's no place like home. It's emotional. It is full of great songs. It gets stuck in your head. And everybody who watches it has that same experience. And, I mean, these things bounce around and they mean something to all of us. It's like people find that kind of power in it. But anyway, Toto, we're home. Home. And this is my room. And you're all here. And I'm not going to leave here ever, ever again. Because I love you all. And, oh, Annie M., there's no place like home. If you're interested, by the way, in helping me stage an elaborate heist to retrieve the FBI's mismatched pair so we can reunite pair number one and pair number six, just raise your hand. I, I, I can't tell if you've raised it. No way of knowing. I don't know why I keep trying to do that. Next time, a trailblazer for women in comedy, Phyllis Diller. At age 38 and a mother of five, she started her career in stand-up. In a lucky break for history, the Smithsonian now has a filing cabinet with every joke she ever wrote. Just for safekeeping. And each drawer... thousand jokes per drawer. Is that right? Yeah. That's 51,000 jokes. 52,569. Wow. Lost of the Smithsonian is produced by Mary Beth Kirshner. Our executive producer and editor is Ellen Weiss. Technical support from Robin Wise and scripting by Alex Berg. Mixing and sound design by Casey Holford and John Delore. Original theme music by Casey Holford. Our supervising producer is Jordan Bell. And our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Huge thanks to the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Eric Gents, Ryan Lintelman, John Troutman, and Laura Duff for all their help in making this show. Lost at the Smithsonian is a production of the Scripps Washington Bureau and Stitcher. I'm your host, Asif Monvi. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Asif and Facebook at Asif Monvi. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. It really helps other people find the show. Thank you so much for listening.